Chapter 1, Part 2 of The Hope of the Gospel. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jordan. The Hope of the Gospel by George MacDonald. Chapter 1, Salvation from Sin, Part 2. One master sin is at the root of all the rest. It is no individual action or anything that comes of mood or passion. It is the non-recognition by the man and consequent inactivity in him of the highest of all relations, that relation which is the root and first essential condition of every other true relation of or in the human soul. It is the absence in the man of harmony with the being whose thought is the man's existence, whose word is the man's power of thought. It is true that, being thus his offspring, God, as St. Paul affirms, cannot be far from any one of us, were we not in closest contact of creating and created, we could not exist. As we have in us no power to be, so have we none to continue being. But there is a closer contact still, as absolutely necessary to our well-being and highest existence as the other to our being at all, to the mere capacity of faring well or ill. For the highest creation of God in man is his will, and until the highest in man meets the highest in God, their true relation is not yet a spiritual fact. The flower lies in the root, but the root is not the flower. The relation exists, but while one of the parties neither knows, loves, nor acts upon it, the relation is as it were, yet unborn. The highest in man is neither his intellect, nor his imagination, nor his reason. All are inferior to his will, and, indeed, in a grand way, dependent upon it. His will must meet God's, a will distinct from God's, else were no harmony possible between them. Not the less, therefore, but the more is all God's. For God creates in the man the power to will his will. It may cost God a suffering man can never know to bring the man to the point at which he will will his will. But when he is brought to that point and declares for the truth, that is, for the will of God, he becomes one with God, and the end of God in the man's creation the end for which Jesus was born and died is gained. The man is saved from his sins, and the universe flowers yet again in his redemption. But I would not be supposed, from what I have said, to imagine the Lord without sympathy for the sorrows and pains which reveal what sin is, and by means of which he would make men sick of sin. With everything human, he sympathizes. Evil is not human. It is the defect and opposite of the human. But the suffering that follows it is human, belonging of necessity to the human that has sinned. While it is by cause of sin, suffering is for the sinner, that he may be delivered from his sin. Jesus is 
in himself aware of every human pain he feels it also in him too is pain with the energy of tenderest love he wills his brothers and sisters free that he may fill them to overflowing with that essential thing joy for that they were indeed created but the moment they exist truth becomes the first thing not happiness and he must make them true were it possible however for pain to continue after evil was gone he would never rest while one ache was yet in the world perfect in sympathy he feels in himself i say the tortured presence of every nerve that lacks its repose the man may recognize the evil in him only as pain he may know little and care nothing about his sins yet is the lord sorry for his pain he cries aloud come unto me all ye that labour and are heavy laden and i will give you rest he does not say come unto me all ye that feel the burden of your sins he opens his arms to all weary enough to come to him in the poorest hope of rest right gladly would he free them from their misery but he knows only one way he will teach them to be like himself meek and lowly bearing with gladness the yoke of his father's will this is the one the only right the only possible way of freeing them from their sins the cause of their unrest with them the weariness comes first with him the sins there is but one cure for both the will of the father that which is his joy will be their deliverance he might indeed it may be take from them the human send them down to some lower stage of being and so free them from suffering but that must be either a descent toward annihilation or a fresh beginning to grow up again toward the region of suffering they have left for that which is not growing must at length die out of creation the disobedient and selfish would fain in the hell of their hearts possess the liberty and gladness that belong to purity and love but they cannot have them they are weary and heavy laden both with what they are and because of what they were made for but are not the lord knows what they need they know only what they want they want ease he knows they need purity their very existence is an evil of which but for his resolve to purify them their maker must rid his universe how can he keep in his sight a foul presence must the creator send forth his virtue to hold alive a thing that will be evil a thing that ought not to be that has no claim but to cease the lord himself would not live save with an existence absolutely good it may be my reader will desire me to say how the lord will deliver him from his sins that is like the lawyer's who is my neighbour the spirit of such a mode of receiving the offer of the lord's deliverance 
is the root of all the horrors of a corrupt theology, so acceptable to those who love weak and beggarly hornbooks of religion. Such questions spring from the passion for the fruit of the tree of knowledge, not the fruit of the tree of life. Men would understand. They do not care to obey. Understand where it is impossible they should understand, save by obeying. They would search into the work of the Lord, instead of doing their part in it, thus making it impossible, both for the Lord to go on with his work, and for themselves to become capable of seeing and understanding what he does. Instead of immediately obeying the Lord of life, the one condition upon which he can help them, and in itself the beginning of their deliverance, they set themselves to question their unenlightened intellects as to his plans for their deliverance, and not merely how he means to effect it, but how he can be able to effect it. They would bind their Samson until they have scanned his limbs and thews. Incapable of understanding the first motions of freedom in themselves, they proceed to interpret the riches of his divine soul in terms of their own beggarly notions, to paraphrase his glorious verse into their own paltry commercial prose, and then, in the growing presumption of imagined success, to insist upon their neighbours' acceptance of their distorted shadows of the plan of salvation as the truth of him in whom is no darkness, and the one condition of their acceptance with him. They delay setting their foot on the stair, which alone can lead them to the house of wisdom, until they shall have determined the material and mode of its construction, for the sake of knowing they postpone that which alone can enable them to know, and substitute for the true understanding which lies beyond a false persuasion that they already understand. They will not accept, that is, act upon their highest privilege, that of obeying the Son of God. It is on them that do his will that the day dawns, to them the day-star arises in their hearts. Obedience is the soul of knowledge. By obedience, I intend no kind of obedience to man, or submission to authority claimed by man, or community of men. I mean obedience to the will of the Father, however revealed in our conscience. God forbid I should seem to despise understanding. The New Testament is full of urgings to understand. Our whole life, to be life at all, must be a growth in understanding. What I cry out upon is the misunderstanding that comes of man's endeavour to understand while not obeying. Upon obedience our energy must be spent, understanding will follow. Not anxious to know our duty, or knowing it, and not doing it, how shall we understand that which only a true heart and a clean soul can ever understand? The power in us that would understand, were it free, lies in the bonds of imperfection and impurity, and is therefore incapable of judging the divine. It cannot see the truth, if it could see it, 
it would not know it, and would not have it. Until a man begins to obey, the light that is in him is darkness. Any honest soul may understand this much, however, for it is a thing we may of ourselves judge to be right, that the Lord cannot save a man from his sins while he holds to his sins. An omnipotence that could do and not do the same thing at the same moment were an idea too absurd for mockery. An omnipotence that could at once make a man a free man and leave him a self-degraded slave, make him the very likeness of God and good only because he could not help being good, would be an idea of the same character, equally absurd, equally self-contradictory. But the Lord is not unreasonable. He requires no high motives where such could not yet exist. He does not say, you must be sorry for your sins, or you need not come to me. To be sorry for his sins, a man must love God and man, and love is the very thing that has to be developed in him. It is but common sense that a man, longing to be freed from suffering, or made able to bear it, should betake himself to the power by whom he is. Equally is it common sense that, if a man would be delivered from the evil in him, he must himself begin to cast it out, himself begin to disobey it and work righteousness. As much as either is it common sense that a man should look for and expect the help of his father in the endeavour. Alone he might labour to all eternity and not succeed. He who has not made himself cannot set himself right without him who made him. But his maker is in him, and is his strength. The man, however, who, instead of doing what he is told, broods speculating on the metaphysics of him who calls him to his work, stands leaning his back against the door by which the Lord would enter to help him. The moment he sets about putting straight the thing that is crooked, I mean, doing right where he has been doing wrong, he withdraws from the entrance, gives way for the master to come in. He cannot make himself pure, but he can leave that which is impure. He can spread out the defiled, discoloured web of his life before the bleaching sun of righteousness. He cannot save himself, but he can let the Lord save him. The struggle of his weakness is as essential to the coming victory as the strength of him who resisted unto death, striving against sin. The sum of the whole matter is this. The Son has come from the Father to set the children free from their sins. The children must hear and obey him that he may send forth judgment unto victory. Son of our Father, Help us to do what thou sayest, and so with thee die unto sin, that we may rise to the sonship for which we were created. Help us to repent, even to the sending away of our sins. End of chapter 1, part 2